This is Deirdre Wallenick, mother of a free solo climber, Alex Honnold, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. He was good. He had just gone with his dad to California for the week. He was really excited because he wore to school the t-shirt that he had gotten as his souvenir from San Diego. And so I dropped him off and within an hour I had my phone blowing up. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Jamie Clemmer, author of Heartbroken But Not Broken. I wrote this book and I told no one. About the tragedy of losing her 10-year-old son suddenly and unexpectedly from a brain hemorrhage. There were a lot of people who said things like, God has a plan, don't worry. And it really angered me because I thought, you know, if God's plan is to take my child from me and to suffer like this, then I hate his plan. We talk about how the grief of losing her son Sawyer changed how she speaks about her faith to others who are suffering, and how Jamie hopes to help others struggling to come to terms with the death of a loved one by revealing what she went through. If I can help anybody know that they are not alone, you have someone in your life that you can walk with and grieve with while they grieve, Step out of your comfort zone and do it, because grieving alone is awful. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode 14 of season three, A Parent's Worst Nightmare, Grieving the Loss of a Child. When I see someone at a big box store going off on their kids and yelling at their children, I just want to go up to them and shake them and say, stop. You don't know what the next 24 hours will hold. These are precious moments. I would do anything, anything, to have one more minute with my child. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is the soul of life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com, check out the courses, and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. My guest today is Jamie Clemmer, author of Heartbroken But Not Broken, which offers readers an intimate recounting of the aftermath of her son's sudden death at the age of 10. She shares the details of her unfettered grief to offer license to anyone struggling to tell their own story. She invites you to walk with her. Her path is complicated and sacred, as is the case with most grievers. We can effectively mourn with those who mourn and comfort 
those who are in need of comfort. We can be present for people in their sorrow. Jamie's story is a testament to all of us that there are no bad emotions. There are no bad parts of us in our mind. When we can have a relationship to our feelings and embody them, they can be productive and a vital part of having a balanced mind and body. Jamie Clemmer, welcome to the Soul of Life. How are you today? Good. Thank you, Keith, for having me. You're very welcome. It's um, it's a pleasure to speak with you, although I will tell you, like I spoke with you um, when we were setting this up, you know, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. Maybe you've heard this before, <laughs> but you know, I didn't want to pick up your book. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to pick it up. And maybe this is why you you wrote the book. We'll, we'll get into talking about this today. Um, you and I are in a special club because we've, in some ways, I would say we've written books that maybe perhaps, I know mine is for sure, a book that people don't know they need it until they need it. Uh, mine's a book about marriage uh, therapy, and most people don't want to talk about that either or don't want to deal with that until sure. they're, they're absolutely in need of it. So, But yours has a better cover. <laughs> it can be about... I, my graphic designer. <laughs> it can be about many things. It's just, you know, heart, heartbroken, but not broken. That could be a, 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 a novel, actually. There but you go. <laughs> yours is, you know, it's not a novel. It's very real. And so when I did finally pick it up, I, you know, as I, as I shared with you, um, I, somewhat uncertain of how you would respond to this, but I, I shared... You know, I, I read it sort of jumping around backwards and starting in the ending. And and then all of a sudden I find, you know, I'm standing in front of my window looking outside. Again, you know, something was unsettled about you know, me picking up this book. And and then I find myself, the tears are just coming and they're just piling up on the carpet underneath the window. And I'm like, wow, I've got to talk to you. <laughs> I love that. I When you said that, I just, it struck a chord with me in that it's hitting somebody. So I'm grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and tell, tell us about your family. And if you're interested, can you tell us about Sawyer and, and your story? Always interested. Anytime anyone lets me speak about Sawyer, I'm in. So, um, yeah, we, I have four children. My oldest is now 23 and I have a senior who just graduated high school. Of course, the big gap right there is Sawyer, um, who would also be in high school now. And then I have a young daughter who's nine. When Sawyer died, she was three. My oldest had just left for college and was a freshman. And um, my middle son, Grayson, who shared a room with Sawyer, was 13. And so they were, of course, the closest in the family, both in age, which then trickled into game time and playtime and peer group and things like that. So that's sort of who we are. My husband was at the time a school superintendent. And so it was one of those situations where everybody knew who we were, but we didn't know very many people having just moved to the area. So um, it was definitely a very public experience when Sawyer died. And the, the events surrounding his death, um, it was a sudden death. And, you know, people hearing this who've experienced something like that, you know, we just went through 9-11, of course, yesterday. And people who are hearing this later will realize we're recording this on the um, 13th of, of September. So a couple of days ago was 9-11. And of course, all of the remembrances come up for the sudden, the shock, the, 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 the disbelief, the denial. Um, yours was a sudden loss. Can you tell us about that? I can. It was totally sudden. Sawyer was healthy and not just healthy, he was crazy healthy. Like very... Um, you know, we didn't really go to the doctor. Everybody in my house had strep once a year, maybe something like that. But um, he was good. He had just gone with his dad to California for the week. 
to spend time with family members. And they came back and when they got back, they had taken a red eye. And so I let Sawyer sleep in that morning and my husband had gone to work. Everybody else was at school or preschool. And I thought, oh, I'll just let him sleep a little bit more. And so I went and woke him up when I got back and said, it's time to go to school. And he got up, he got dressed, he got ready for school. We took him, I took him to school like it was no big deal. Um, in the book, I tell of a little conversation, if you will, about what mothers do after preteens get out of the shower and say, did you wash your hair? Did you use conditioner? All of those things and go hop back in. You got a shampoo, all that kind of stuff. And so he was good. He was really excited because he wore to school the t-shirt that he had gotten as his souvenir from San Diego. And so I dropped him off and Within an hour, I had my phone blowing up between calls from the school, calls from my husband, and he had stood, um, he was in his social studies class and his teacher said, Sawyer, you look like you're not feeling well. Are you okay? And he proceeded to vomit in the classroom. And so his teacher told him to, you know, stand up and go to the nurse. And I, um, you know, I think about that long walk to the nurse's hall. And, you know, all the people that just passed him, not knowing that that would be the last time that they saw him. And I just think, you know, I hope everybody smiled at him. I hope someone gave him a high five or mm. asked him how he was doing. Um, but he went to the nurse's office and proceeded to have a seizure. They called the ambulance and he proceeded to be unresponsive or seizing um, until the very end. Mm. So. They did do uh, three surgeries at the hospital in the hopes to try to relieve some of the pressure, but ultimately they were all unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Such a sudden and unexpected loss. And I can't imagine how you can process all of that and somehow make decisions about what doctors are telling you or, or even comprehend. How, how did you, in hindsight, how did you get through that day? I'm like, I know we did because I'm here talking to you about it, but I think that's part of the shock and the numbness. And, you know, now looking back and also just with the line of work that I do being trauma informed, I understand that there's a reason I can't remember things in a linear fashion. There's a reason I have um, episodes and time that sort of just lapsed and I don't know what I was doing or how I was functioning, but you know, even to this day, almost five years later, at the end of October, we still have decision fatigue. And I think it's really stemming from those couple of days, you know, how how do you make those decisions so quickly? When we were courting, you know, my husband and I were really communicative. It was one of the things that my mom said tuned her into the idea that I was maybe going to marry this guy because we talked all the time. She's like, I can't believe you guys talk all the time. I said, oh, we talk about everything under the sun. <laughs> but you know, the last thing that we ever thought about talking about was what we would do if our son was in the hospital dying. Right. How we would make those decisions. Do we go in? Do we do another surgery? Do we leave him on life support? Do we donate his organs? All of, do we cremate him? Do we bury him? I mean, all of these things. And you have to decide right then and there. No one's prepared for that. No one's prepared for that. No one's prepared for that. And the suddenness of it was just, it it was compounded by the intensity of it. So it was very fast. It was a very intense experience. 
you, you, I'm glad you mentioned that you, you know, you have this, you know, obviously you have a life outside of this event. And, you know, today, of course, we're talking about this in reference to your book. And so that there's, you know, the story about that, which could make things sound as though this is your life. And this is, this is not your life. This is part of your life. <laughs> um, feels like it feels like it some days, but yes, it is a part. <laughs> well, can you say more about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's so all consuming, but I have three other surviving children Mm -hmm. who I have to make sure take their chemistry exam and don't fail who makes, you know, you know, better than I do, but we did a lot of reading in the aftermath and it made my children more susceptible to high risk behaviors and all of these things. So we had to monitor them as well as get their homework turned in and have the dog fed. And my husband still had a job and I work for the courts. And so I still had to continue doing my job and I work with um, domestic and sexual violence survivors. And so there's a lot of trauma around there. And so, you know, somehow, but we have to keep the lights on. We have to pay all the bills. And so you have to sort of handle the trauma and the chaos and the entire new life because now I have no more soccer practice to go to. Well, does you know, Grayson and Sawyer were playing on the same basketball team. Do we still play basketball? If so, how do we navigate that? I mean, we think of all of the things that are associated with the death immediately, but then there are 9 million other decisions and questions and circumstances that you now have to navigate. Birthday parties they were both supposed to go to. Mm -hmm. Now, do you send one or do you not? So, you know, sometimes I think we get lost in the big things, but the little things can be just as heartbreaking, just as devastating, and just as impactful as some of the bigger things, mm. you know? You mentioned that you're, you're in a helping profession working in domestic abuse in the courts. Um, did this experience of loss in, in your own life give you a different perspective? Or, or you know, did you experience what mm-hmm. some people have as compassion fatigue? I know I've experienced a, a form of burnout and a depression. And uh, one of my... When I was in college studying theology, undergraduate, Henri Nouwen, the Catholic theologian who, who died, and I think while I was in school in 1999, um, you know, had this book called The Wounded Healer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but that concept of the, 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 the healer being better equipped to heal because of his or her understanding of their own wounds. I need to look up that book because I, I do find that it's a different layer of compassion, but then I think it's also balanced with a different layer of anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. You know, when I see someone at a big box store going off on their kids and yelling at mm-hmm. their children, I just want to go up to them and shake them and say, stop. You don't know what the next 24 hours will hold. These are precious moments, you know? When we're sitting at a restaurant and someone's berating their child, it's all I can do to not just pay the bill and stand up and leave because I would do anything, anything to have one more minute with my child and to know that they're spending those moments. And, and, you know, I, I hate for it to come across as judgment because heaven knows I've yelled at my kids before. Um, but there is so much guilt of all the things that you in hindsight would do differently, that it makes me more present for my current children as I raise them. It makes me more um, present for my spouse. It makes me more present for the people around me to say, okay, you have to enjoy this moment, even in the pain, enjoy it with the pain. Mm -hmm. 
because you don't know when they'll be gone. Yeah, it's it's so important what you're saying. And I want to put this frame around this for people hearing your your subjective experience, because it. I, I spoke with David Kessler, who is one of the foremost, if not the most leading kind of expert on grief, if there, if there can be. Uh, he was the protege to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, known for the we know for the five stages of grief, he's come up with a sixth stage of grief. He was talking about this idea how we judge ourselves for our reaction to grief versus other people's on this sort of hierarchy and with suicide or other um, types of losses that seem self-inflicted to be, you know, really the most judged. And um, he was saying, you know, you've got to just let yourself have your grief. And the way it shows up for you, if you're getting angry at at other people, like when we suppress that and when we repress that, then we don't grieve. It's not to say we act from those feelings. You sure. don't have to act from those feelings, but you do have to feel them. Yes, yes. I will not go up to someone in Costco, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> if you're out there right now in Costco yelling at your kids. <laughs> I will not approach you. I swear I won't. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And one of the things that was really important to me to convey in the book was the idea that everybody does it differently. But until we start speaking about it, I don't know that. We don't know that. That's it's right. a very ethereal idea. Okay, you do it differently. Well, what does that mean? It's what messy. does that look like? That's yeah. right. It's it's not pretty. Well, okay, does your not pretty look like this? Oh, mine mine's ugly like that too. Oh no, mine's ugly in a different way. You know, but I I I considered myself a very private person. Um, to the extent that I could be in light of my role and my husband's role in the community. And, and yet here we were with this very public experience. You know, Sawyer was rushed from the only middle school by ambulance. Um, so it was, and the superintendent, of course, is running across the field to get to the ambulance. So it's very public. All the schools are then on standby. It's out in the paper that someone's left the school by ambulance. So it's very public. And I found as I was grieving, I felt a lot of eyes on me. And then I realized, forget this. If people are going to watch this grief and stand by, I want them to see the real story. I want them to know the ugly. and. We need a common narrative to talk about grief. We just do. And so movies are great. Books are great. And I just wanted to offer this story of mine as sort of this gift to those who are grieving or those who know someone who's grieving to say, okay, you don't know what to say. You don't know what ugly looks like. Let me show you. And you and you really lay it out. You're very candid and courageous and sharing what it was like for you in your book heartbroken but not broken. Um, tell me about that phrase, heartbroken but not broken. Where did that come from? Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so after Sawyer was wheeled from his room, which we had then been in for several days, um, the way it works. And if you're not familiar with the book, we did decide uh, to donate Sawyer's organs. You know, most of the time when kids go to the hospital, it's because they're sick. A lot of children don't go to the hospital healthy and then it ends up fatal. And so after very long, difficult discussions, we did decide that we were going to try to make that phone call for others that we didn't get, yeah. you know, that your, ch your child will, will live. And so 
it involves a lot of complicated paperwork and waiting. It involved a lot of waiting. And so we had decided we were going to stay through the very end. And it was a 13-hour surgery. And we said, we don't care. We're staying. And that was our plan. And as in grief with things changing moment to moment, we had three other children melting down and truly, um, you know, obviously in crisis. And so we needed to get home to them. And that was when it struck us, okay, we have we have to take the next step, even though we don't want to. We wanted to stay in that hospital for 13 hours right. and just and just pine away and cry and scream and all of those things. But that's when we realized we couldn't do that. So we took some sacred moments there in that hospital room and Sawyer left and and we just sat in that space. And I tear tearfully said to my husband, you know, we can't let this break us. I'm worried this is going to break us. And he said, Jamie, we can be heartbroken, but we cannot be broken. And I agree. And so that just became what we had to keep saying to ourselves. The other night we had had a hard day. There were some experiences that came up, you know, as, as we function in our grief, we also watch as other people <clears throat> function as the as Sawyer's peers move on to, you know, homecoming dances is next weekend. And we watch his peers buying dresses and asking um, people on dates and things like that. So it was just sort of a rough weekend. And my husband, Jack, said, maybe you need to write a sequel that says, just kidding, we're broken. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's a, okay, okay, I'll get on it. <laughs> right. Well, and I wonder what the role of writing played in your in your grieving yeah it was really i didn't realize that until i've started doing some of these interviews in the aftermath because i have to tell you keith i wrote this book and i told no one it was a file on my computer that i would write i didn't want i wanted to be able to feel the emotions again because it was important for me to write it in the immediate aftermath because i didn't want to forget i didn't want to forget the little details it's funny because now I feel like all I want to do is forget, but I feel like because I wrote them down, I can forget. People will bring up in book clubs that I've been doing, they'll bring up little incidents and I'll say, oh my gosh, I forgot that. Was that in the book? Or did I tell you that? No, Jamie, that's in the book. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Because I feel like by writing it down, I could then let go of it. It sort of puts because it in. Because it was somewhere. It's got a place to be, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But I, but I hadn't told anybody because... I would write it when my daughter went to preschool. So she would go three days a week for two and a half hours. And so after I would drop her off, I would, in my sunglasses, mind you, um, I would come home and I would just type and type and type. And I'm just writing and I just wrote, 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 story, 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 incident after incident, mm. moments that I could remember. And and as you know, um, in trauma, you don't remember things in a linear way. So I would just write down stories and I would just, you know, this incident, that incident. And when I had about 180 pages, I had this thought, I wonder if someone else would want to read this because I originally wrote it with the idea that my children's partners would, I wanted them to know. I knew that I couldn't tell them everything that happened to Sawyer, hmm. but for Sawyer, for Sawyer to be a part of our family narrative and for my three other children 
their lives are impacted by Sawyer and Sawyer's story. And I needed the people who love them to know what trauma they went through, to know the trauma of our family. Um, I had read a study a long time ago from the New York Times that talked about children who know their family narrative, the ups and the downs, they're more resilient. And so that's something we've always tried to do is to keep them a part of the discussion, no matter what was going on in our lives. And so I thought, okay, everyone has to know these awful things to have compassion and understanding for the relationship that they're in with my children yeah, and and me as a mother-in-law and my husband as a mother-in-law right. in, in the right. very, very distant future. Oh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's such a wonderful legacy, Jamie. You wouldn't wish this on anyone to have to, to prompt this to, in order to, to generate that amount of energy. And, and, but you know, we've lost, I think, well, my next question is to ask you about your faith, but we've, because we've lost our rituals in, in large part, like, you know, you've created something that is so energetic that will be really useful for, like you said, everyone that follows you to reimagine themselves and see it in the context of where they came from and that they belong. Yeah, I, that's my hope. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your faith and, and, and how this event changed your faith. Yeah, so that's a really good question. You know, I I follow a fairly traditional Christian belief, and I do believe in God. And throughout the book, it was important to me that I write through that lens. And I didn't even know that until I was looking back at it. When I was going through the thought process of, is does this have value for anyone outside my family? One of the questions I thought was, you know, most of my friends are not religious. I would consider them a-religious. And I thought, well, I'm going to pull all the religious components, the perspectives, the, the, I'm going to pull the religious lens out of the book. And I submitted it to one publisher and it just felt wrong. Um, and so I put all the religious stuff back in and it was important to me that it didn't come across as a book about religion because it's not. I'm no theological expert. I'm just a regular old believing, you know, Christian regular person. Um, you know, I have no leadership. I have no authority other than my own experience, but it's definitely the lens that I, I look through. And so there were a lot of people who said things like, God has a plan. Don't worry. Or, you know, God has this, leave it in God's hands. And it really angered me. Because I thought, you know, if God's plan is to take my child from me and to suffer like this, then I hate his plan. Mm. And and I needed to have God on my side. As a faithful person, I needed to know that God had my back on this. And so it really changed the way I speak about faith to other people. Because the things that people said to me about faith, it was almost like they come across as as this idea that had you been more faithful, you could have saved your child. Kind of a spiritualizing uh, type of, a little bit of uh, looking down a little bit. Yes, yes, yes. You know, so what, what does my faith have to do with a neurological disease that was not identified previously that often ends up fatal? You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think they're correlated. Right. And so... Yeah. I had to navigate that for myself because I had to go through those questions. Well, oh my gosh, had I prayed more? Could I have saved my child? I mean, these are awful questions, right? And yet I'm finding myself asking them because people are saying these things that put me in this 
space of having to either believe and think that I didn't believe well enough. Mm. Or, you yeah, know, right, right. Or, or that I must not be a believer. And that's not true. I believe that God is someone I can have a relationship and he mourns with me. And he is sad that things happen this way. And he, you know, I love that Psalm that says, God, you know, you weep through the night and there's peace in the morning. Um, I should look it up so I know it better. But um, weeping may endure for the night, but peace comes in the morning. And mm. and that gave me a lot of confidence because I just could imagine God weeping with me through the night and then the sun coming up and him saying, okay, I have these heavenly parents who want me to have a good day, who want me to have a faithful perspective on the way I interact with people. And if I look at God in a punitive way as him punishing me for some reason, that just is not helpful or healthy. And that's not the God I believe in. Right. So right. We need to know that we're loved and we're we're looked after. Yes. Um, yes. And everything else flows out of that, I think. I think you're right. Um, I do. You, you, I want to put a frame around this next question because you, you had, you collected a, a number of phrases and you're mentioning some of them that relate to faith as sort of spiritualizing. I like to call it spiritualizing sort of, um, almost trite things that, you know, people may, may be well intentioned, but actually are, are rather thoughtless, right? And that's, that's the opposite yes. of spiritual. It's not very reflective. It's not risking right. very much. Um, and, and I want the frame I want to put around this. I want to ask you if you can recount some of those phrases that you collected that, that were difficult for you, that people would, you know, respond to you in a certain way. The frame I want to put around this is, you know, in, in the work that I do, Jamie, um, getting rid of discomfort is not the goal, you know, right. And so much of our, and this is not for you because I want, this is, you know, your story is your story, but for people hearing this, I don't want them to hear this as a list of thou shalt nots because I don't right. think, especially now we have this culture where there's so much paranoia around saying or doing the wrong thing. And what we, what we do is we sanitize all the discomfort. So then we don't have any interactions. We're not actually, we can't make mistakes. So we just remove ourselves from stumbling and fumbling and really screwing it up and hurting somebody because that's actually what, if we go through it, we can actually learn from each other. Um, everyone's so different. So, <laughs> but what were some of the phrases that were difficult for you to hear? Yeah. Well, I, the one I mentioned, God has a plan. Um, no, just don't. Um, <laughs> um, the other one that really struck a chord with me is, you know, he's in a better place. And I just want to ask someone, well, what is that better place? And which of your children would you prefer to have in that better place right now? You know, um, there is no better place than in my arms with, you know, him being comforted by me. And, and I just have a hard time swallowing that. Um, so those were some of them. As you, as you talked about everyone experiencing grief differently and, not wanting to offend. So we step back. It's funny that you say that because um, in the beginning, when I was trying to decide, okay, is there value outside my circle? I, I'd given this book to a friend of mine who's a, a psychology professor. And I said, what do you think? And she said, one of the things I'm concerned about after she read the manuscript was, it makes me want to do nothing. You know, <laughs> I feel like I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. So I guess I'll just do nothing. And I thought, oh, no. I've got to go in and go back over and add some contextual pieces that help people understand it's not what you say or what you don't say. There's not a list of things that are good versus things that are bad. 
It's about knowing someone. So if someone knows me, they will know what works and what doesn't. And the reason they will is because they'll communicate with me. And so when people come to me and they say things and it rubs me the wrong way and we have a relationship where I can say, hey, so-and-so, actually the way that comes across is a little painful. Um, and I know I won't offend them and they will take that hopefully with grace and then say, I'm sorry, what can I say? Mm-hmm. It's a learning moment. That's right. But if we don't dialogue with one another, yeah. then we can't know what's offensive or not yeah, offensive. If we're afraid, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there was an incident at the hospital that I recount in the book where we we did live out in the country and the nearest hospital was like 35 minutes away. And so one of our dear friends who I consider part of our inner circle, they were there from the beginning till the very end. So someone who knew us, someone who was intimate, who was there while we made those terrible decisions. I mean, they watched our child while we went in with our other child to decide if he was going to live or die. I mean, intimate inner circle, right? And she said, how come you guys didn't have the helicopter come get him? He might've been saved if he had been life flighted. And it was just this punch, you know? And that wasn't our call to make. That was the paramedics. They're trained experts. We were in trauma. They felt like that would be better after talking to the neurologist in the aftermath our neurologist told us the second that the first seizure started in the middle school was that that was the end. <clears throat> we we don't want to hear that mm-hmm. while we're going through it. Mm-hmm. But now that it's over, he's like, you can know that that was that was the end. Mm-hmm. And it was just so painful to hear that. And so we stewed on it and they had left the room and my husband and I just kept getting angrier and angrier about that idea. And feeling, of course, deficient. Like, did we screw something up? You know, could we have saved him? And then we realized, no, okay. And we, we, my husband went to our friend and said, look, that really hurt our feelings. I know you didn't mean it that way, but it really hurt. And she was a very apologetic. And I'm so thankful that you told me that. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for helping me know what not to say. Maybe for somebody else, it would be helpful to hear. I, I don't right. think it I would. Mean, you but... know, yeah, it just it just brings you into closer orbit. I imagine to have yes. that, even though it's painful to make those mistakes. Yes, and so you know, even even if by putting it out there, Sawyer's story, people can have a very benign to them story to talk about this. Oh, when this happened, I would have done this. I would have said that. You know, that's my goal is to start people talking. You know, mm-hmm. not everybody's going to love what I wrote. <clears throat> it was funny. I was talking to the publisher the other day and they were very excited because they had only had five returns of the book. <laughs> and I laughed and I'm like, can you give me their phone number? I, I want to call them. I want to call them. I'll give them their money back. <laughs> I want to know the five people because I don't want I, I I just want to have a conversation with them. I just want it to start a conversation. I agree that you maybe don't agree with me or you don't like what I had to say. But I want to, I want to have a conversation about that. I, I love this idea that there are book clubs out there that are having conversations about grief because yeah. as we talk about it, as we learn about it, and they can do it from a safe space because Sawyer's story is not their story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That hopefully then when it is their story, they'll have language and practice and empathy that they maybe didn't have before they knew Sawyer's story. Right. Does that make sense? Right. It does. It does. Yeah. Because everyone's grief is so different. We can see 
I can see your grief and then sort of reinterpret what, what, how I might be carrying or maybe not carrying or avoiding ways of grieving. So it brings us into closer connection to it somehow. Yes. I love your sentiment about bringing each other into closer orbit. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it, it sounds like you're doing that in, in your work and in your writing. You, you mentioned that you and your husband talk about yourselves being grief ambassadors. Yes. <laughs> um, how does, you know, does that some, is that a title that you tire of sometimes? Um, or yes. do, do you find yourself um, want seeing yourself doing that for a while? You know, I, I think that at this point is probably our role and it's exhausting, mm. but I also feel like it's maybe the work that we're called to do at this point because somebody has to. And I hear often that people say, I, I'm fascinated that you put your story out there. And some people are critical. I can't believe you put all these intimate details about your family out to the world. And, and to that, I say, I hear you. And if I were not in this position, just reading this book, I might have left it on my bookshelf longer than not as well. Right. One of the first reviewers called me and said, you don't know this about me. I'm just a reviewer for the book, but I actually am non, I am an atheist. And I was worried about the book, knowing that it had a bit of a religious lens. But she said, but what you also don't know about me is that my daughter died 23 years ago. Mm. And I wish I'd had this book 23 years ago. And my concern was, oh my gosh, I'm sorry you had to read that as a griever, as a bereaved parent, which is a title I hate, but nonetheless, it's clinical. It's what we've got. Um, and she said, no, I felt really validated in some of the things that I went through and some of the things that people said to me. And she said, you have no idea that there are people who you don't even know and you will never know who will read your book and be grateful that you shared your story. Yeah. And, and at that moment, I just thought I will speak to any book club. I will go on any podcast. I will talk to anybody who will listen. If I can help anybody know that they're not alone. And that grieving alone is terrible. So if you have someone in your life that you can walk with and grieve with while they grieve, step out of your comfort zone and do it because grieving alone is awful. Your, your book is really a, a message of hope. And it, it, it really is one that uh, even though it, it, it certainly made me uncomfortable because I have kids and I didn't want to be brought into that world that... yes. Um, I felt like, you know, I don't want to, I don't, it's not, it's not my time to do that. Why would I want to do that? Why is it going to ruin my day? But at the end of the day, my experience, and this was true with your book, is that when we, when we have courage to actually go into the discomfort and, and be curious about it, why am I having this reaction to this? Why do I want to put this down? Right. What am I avoiding? And then, you know, that will speak to you. And it did, it, it did for me. And, you know, you're speaking from your voice and with confidence. And I, I can only echo what, what you're hearing from some of your readers, that it will hit them in ways that you can't imagine and that it's going to mm. give them a gift. We're, we're in this time, obviously, as you know, where that we're all feeling uncomfortable for, from something. And, it, and that's grief from the pandemic yeah. and from we're still processing all of the many layers in our culture of grief that we're going through. And the fact that we can't talk about it, I think, is part of the reason that the grief is festering and worse and heavier because we don't know how to talk about it. We don't have a language to speak about grief. And so whether it's by reading my book or listening to podcasts or reading other books about grief, I just hope people will take the time to understand, see the other side. I call it the dirty underbelly of grief, but do something that 
gives you a glance at the dirty underbelly of grief so that you can be more empathetic to others and so that you can have a language for your own grief. Because as we talk about it and put it out there, we normalize it. And I think that can only make us a healthier community and population at large. Thank you for putting yourself out there. Jamie Clemmer, her book is Heartbroken But Not Broken. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Keith. I'm so grateful I got to come on. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, or get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.